really this story that Jesus concludes with in his series of parables in Luke chapter 15 is split into two parts. And I'd like to cover the first part this morning, but I want to read uh, the whole parable. So Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 11, let's read through the end of the chapter. And Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son, was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word, and I pray that you would give to us your Holy Spirit, that we may take it and take your love to heart. We thank you for your love, your faithful love, your deep love, your eternal love. Without it, we would be lost. By it, we belong to you forever through your Son, Jesus. It's in his name that we praise you and ask for your help now. Amen. You know, uh, last week I told you that uh, in our sinful state outside of Christ, 
we have a very hard time believing that we are as bad off as the Bible says we are away from Jesus. Our thinking is, I'm not that bad of a person like you are telling me. What is this totally depraved stuff? That's not me. And surely God's judgment, if he has any, which, you know, he doesn't for me, it can't be that severe. It cannot be that severe. So we have this trouble believing that we are actually that bad off before we come to Jesus. Now that we do belong to Jesus, we still have this unbelief problem. But it runs in the opposite direction now. We have a hard time believing, now that we are in Christ, that things can actually be this good for us, that we are this good off as the Bible says we are. Because as we mature in our faith and grow in our understanding of our sinfulness, Christians often tend to think, can God still love me as He loved me before? Can He still love me as He loved me before? And it's a struggle to believe in God's covenant love being deep with affection and being lasting and this uh this struggle can happen to believers shortly after they begin their walk with Jesus and after many years it can happen to the immature christian and to the mature as well what we would call a a struggle for assurance so here is our problem as believers when we have this difficulty Our problem is not so much that we overestimate our sin, but it's that we underestimate the power of Jesus to save. And we underestimate the love of God for His own. Do you see what I'm saying? In our struggle to believe that things are this good for us, we're not overestimating our sin, I think, but rather we are underestimating the love of God for us. And as Luke 15 reveals, it is this obsessive love of God, like we were talking about last week. This obsessive searching and this excessively celebrating love of God over His own. It is unfathomable love beyond all that we could ever know, beyond all that we could ask or Think. And I'm, I'm quoting a little bit from Paul in Ephesians chapter 3. And Paul, he submits that statement to us. He says, I want you, he prays, you know, that we would know the love of God that passes knowledge. Now it's one thing to say it, and it's good to say it, and we need it to be said. We need to hear it. We need that truth proposition, that doctrinal statement that says, you may know the love of God for you, Truly, but you cannot know it exhaustively. So we need to hear that. But in addition to hearing the statement, we need to see it for ourselves. We need to see. And that's why Jesus tells in Luke chapter 15 stories. So that we can see the love of God and know that it is beyond all of our knowing are measuring all of it. Now of all the stories that Jesus told 
in the Gospels, all of the parables, this is the longest parable. I think that perhaps it is the easiest parable to comprehend um, as far as the meaning goes. It's the easiest perhaps to, to picture. And I would say surely this is the most emotionally charged of all of the parables. And any child of God who is doubting the love of God for them personally needs to come to Luke chapter 15 Hear this word from Jesus. Take it to heart and let all their doubts about God's love be erased. Because that's the effect that this parable has if we will believe it. Let's set up the context again. Remember, this starts with tax collectors and sinners in Luke 15 verse 1 drawing near to Jesus. When the Pharisees and the scribes see that Jesus receives them and actually freely eats with these people, they are really upset about it. And that's when Jesus tells a series of stories, three stories, in fact, in order, he, he tells these stories to the tax collectors and sinners and the Pharisees and scribes both so that they will understand that there is no love in all the world like the love of God for sinners. The first story is of a man's obsessive search for one measly sheep and his excessive celebration when he carries it home and calls his neighbors to share in his joy. The second story is of a woman's obsessive search for one little coin and her excessive celebration when she finds it and calls on her neighbors to share in her joy. This third story, the climactic story, is about a father giving his wicked son over to his greed and sin only to receive him back again with excessive celebration and invite his older son, his righteous son, to come in and share in his joy. So you can see with my repetition there how all of these parables fit together and parallel one another. Now, if you will uh, look at your your heading, you probably have a, a heading, not inspired heading, above verse 11, you know, setting apart from the other two parables. It's probably called the parable of the prodigal son. We know, I hope, that that is actually an inaccurate story, because uh, title, because there are two sons in this story, right? There are two sons, but really... These parables, in fact, my, my headings are the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the prodigal son. But these parables are not about what is lost. That's not the point. The point is not what is lost, but who is seeking and finding. Who is the main character in these three parables? Jesus tells us in the first verse of each story, The main character in the first is the man who seeks and finds the sheep. That's verse 4. The second story, the main character is the woman who seeks and finds her coin. And in verse 11, Jesus again shows us who the main character is. It's the father who seeks and longs to find both of his sons. These parables are about God. I know they are about sinners too, but first and foremost, they are about God. And His heart 
for sinners, both prodigal son sinners and pharisaical son sinners. The prodigal and the proud. God has great heart and great love for both. Let's get back into this story. We'll pick it up with verse 2. It says, And the younger of them, of these two sons, said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. This younger son is not just a dumb kid being dumb. He's the kind of kid that is sick and tired of waiting around for his father to die and finally says as much. That's who he is. So he makes this demand of his father, give me my share, my share of the inheritance. This was not standard behavior. This was not a conventional way of getting the inheritance finally passed down. This was outrageously ungrateful and despicable behavior. In fact, if they were going to practice the Old Testament law, crossing every T and dotting every I, this son could be legitimately put to death. This son would rather have his father's money than his father. And he says so. He'd rather have his father dead. That's what this amounts to. Now, at this point, the father has some options. How is he going to respond? James Edwards writes, and I think this is helpful. The father could have responded variously. He could have put the young man in his place. I had to wait until my father was lowered in the ground, and you must too. He could have tried appeasement. If your allowance is not enough, I'll double it. He could have taken a probationary approach. I'll give you a half section of property and see how you do with it. He could have appealed to the remaining shreds of his son's honor. Don't subject your family to such disgrace. The father has authority to do any of these, but he forsakes them all because he knows that none of these things will save his son. None of these things is going to affect in his son a change of heart. And so he does what on the surface we might think is foolish. But this is wise and it's strategic on his part. And listen, I am not saying that this is a prescription for how you must treat wayward children. This is talking about God and his relationship with sinners. There may be some principles here, but that's not the point of this parable. The point is that this man is giving his son over to his wicked desires. He's giving him over to his sin and to his greed with the hope that he will be brought to an end of himself. He will come to the end of his rope and he will have nowhere to turn but the father. And then, finally then, the son will be able to see how much his father actually loves him. Because to this point, if he had taken any of those other measures, he still would not know the love of the Father. His heart would not be one to his Father. So this is the Father's strategy. Give him over to his sin. Receive him back when he is impoverished, and then the Son may know how much I actually love him. Once he has received his share of the property, which as the younger son in those days would be a third of the property, the younger son goes ahead and sells it. He doesn't have any intent of sticking around and managing this and trying to to grow profit off of the land. He sells all of it at great profit to himself and 
he goes, takes this journey, the Bible says, into a far country. A far country. There's a lot of uh, there's symbolism there. It's not just that this, you know, this country is physically far and physically uh, foreign to him. The road that he is taking away from his father is a road down. It's not just physically foreign territory. It is spiritually foreign territory. Far from where he belongs. The Bible says at the end of verse 13, there he squandered his property in reckless living. The son wasted all that he had on temporary pleasures. And in that sense, he is so different from Moses, isn't he? Do you remember Moses from Hebrews chapter 11? What the Bible says about what he did? It says, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. This young man is doing the opposite of that. When he was grown up, he refused to be called the son of his father, choosing rather the fleeting pleasures of sin. Now he has spent everything. There's one thing he could could predict, being out of money. But something happens that he can't predict, and what he couldn't predict is actually what occurs. A severe famine arises. And so, suddenly, not only is the far country out of pleasures for this young man, it is also out of provision. And the Bible says he began to be in need. Desperate need. Well, Now what is he going to do? We're here at a last resort kind of moment. It says in verse 15, he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of this Gentile country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. Unfortunately, this didn't improve his lot, unfortunately for you know what he was thinking, because now he is longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs are eating and nobody gives him anything. In other words, when he hires himself out to this man, his pay is room. He has a place to stay. But what he doesn't get is food or enough money to buy food. So think about how far now this young man has fallen. He goes from being the wealthy son of a very generous landowner to a beggar in a wasteland. And not only is he being reduced now to this menial work, slave labor, but he is consigned to pig duty. That's a big deal. It's a big deal, um, not just because it's pig duty and they're, you know, dirty and it's going to be terrible work, but because this young man's a Jew. And according to the Old Testament law of God, the the people of God were not to eat pig's flesh. They were not to touch the carcass of a dead pig. Pigs were unclean. Not muddy unclean, but unclean according to the law. And there was something else too. 
that made pigs so, uh, we, we know this even today. A lot of people who don't even know the Bible very well know that pigs are off limits for Jews. And there's something in their history that brought this, this, uh, aversion about. You see, before the people of Israel went into exile, God condemned them for eating pig's flesh and offering pig's blood as sacrifice. And so they went into exile because of that and many other things. And when they came back from the land, they had been purified of this idolatry that had been their former practice. Now pigs, you know, were definitely off limits and they weren't going to go there anymore. You don't see Israel for the rest of their time in their history. We don't see them bowing down to images of wood and stone anymore, do you? Even in Jesus' day, you don't see them uh, committing what we uh, associate with typical idolatry. They've been cured of that. Now it's more a problem of the heart. But it's not overt anymore. Well, between the Testaments, what we call the intertestamental period, the Syrians wrestled away control of Palestine. And there was a man, a leader of the Syrians, by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, who was intent not on winning the Jews to him with favor, but suppressing them and holding them captive. So he was determined to exterminate Old Testament Judaism. And he did this by forcing the Jewish people to eat pig's flesh and by desecrating the altar in the temple by going into the inner sanctions of the temple and offering on the altar dead pigs. So this story, what Jesus is telling, you know, these people who are listening to this are repulsed by pigs. Not only, you know, it's not by an aversion to their filth. It's not only because in their law pigs were forbidden, but also because through them there was the most horrible violation of their faith. So here is the son, the son of a generous nobleman consigned to pig duty. Think about this. He was once envious of what his father had. And now he is envious of pigs. Then and there, the Bible says that he came to himself. He had a moment of clarity. And he realized how pathetic and foolish and wicked that he had been. So he said to himself, verse 17 through 19, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to my father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Do you remember what the Lord warned um, the church in uh, of Ephesus about in Revelation chapter 2? Famous uh, passage there, Revelation chapter 2, when they had lost their first love. The way that the Lord put it, He says, you have abandoned the love that you had at first. And then He said, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent. So as this young man, to use the Bible's terms, comes to himself, as we might say, he comes to his senses, he realizes the stupidity of his action. He remembers where he has fallen from. 
he remembers who he has fallen from. Here he was, a hired servant in a far country, not even getting food from a foreign boss. But back home, the servants had more than enough bread from his father's hand. What in the world had he been thinking? So now he does think for the first time in a long time. And he begins to plan his repentance speech. And the question about his speech here is, is it any good? Is this actually true repentance that he is thinking through? And I believe that the answer is clearly yes. And I'll tell you why. Simply for the fact that he acknowledges without excuse his sin. Like David. Remember, Nathan the prophet says to David, David, you're the man. You are guilty. And what does David say in reply? I have sinned against the Lord. Simple, clear acknowledgement of sin. What are the other possibilities that would show that this young man isn't truly repentant? And when it comes to you and me, how do we know what is true repentance and what is false repentance? You know, just making a good show of it to try to get our way. This young man doesn't deny his sin. He doesn't go back to the father and say, Father, you heard me wrong. I didn't actually say what you thought I said. I was just as shocked as you when you you know, dumped all of this property in my lap. He doesn't deny his sin. And a lot of people do. I didn't do that. I didn't say that. He doesn't either justify his sin. Well, Father, under the circumstances, that was actually the right thing for me to do. You know, by me and by you. He doesn't justify his sin. And, as so many unrepentant people do, he doesn't minimize his sin. Well, it's not that big of a deal. So many people, you know, how think about it. How could I have got the inheritance? I could have snuck up behind you in the field one day and just stabbed you in the back. Wiped the fingerprints off the knife and gone on my merry way you know, getting my one-third of the property. He doesn't minimize his sin. He doesn't say, look, other people do so much more, so much worse than me. He simply acknowledges his sin. And with knowing and acknowledging his sin, he also knows and he acknowledges his deep unworthiness. He is no longer worthy to be called his father's son. So, I do think, however, that there is a problem with his thinking. His repentance is true, but there's still a hole in his thinking. It's not that he overestimates his sin, by no means, or underestimates it for that matter. He acknowledges what it is. He doesn't overestimate his sin, but he underestimates the love and the kindness, and the generosity of his father. That's the problem with his thinking. You see, this young man has dwelt in the tents of wickedness. Now he realizes that it would be better for him to be a doorkeeper in his father's house. So we come to verse 20, finally. And these words from Jesus are a highlight 
in all the New Testament scriptures. Because we would never guess what Jesus says next. In fact, let's think about what he didn't have to say. He could have said good things. He could have said um, things so much less than this that would actually tell a good story and would be moving. We would be moved, even if Jesus had said less. But Jesus says the best that there is to say about the holy and the sovereign God and His heart for sinners. It says in verse 20, Jesus says, and He he arose and came to His Father. But while He was still a long way off, His Father saw Him and felt compassion and ran and embraced Him and kissed Him. And listen to me, it would never enter the heart of man that the one true God is like this. A father who abandons all dignity, yanks up his robes, and sprints down the road to a wretch who wanted him dead and smothers him in kisses. That would never enter the heart of man. What more could the Father do to show His love than this? One thing. If it came to the law demanding the death of the Son, the Father stepping in and laying down His life in place of His Son. That's the one thing more. And you know where my thoughts are going with that, so I don't need to say any more. The Father here, think about this. He doesn't wait for His Son to come to Him. He doesn't stand there with His arms crossed, scowl on His face, tapping His foot, waiting for His Son to prostrate Himself before His Father. He runs to Him. And when He runs to Him, He embraces Him and He kisses Him. You see, he's, and He's not waiting for His Son's speech. He's not looking for a speech. He's looking for His Son. Do you get that? Sinner, do you get that? The Lord is not looking for your speech. He is looking for His Son. And He is looking for His daughter. That's what the Lord is looking for. Can't you tell this? Can you see Him run down the road? Can you hear His shout to realize who it is that's coming over the horizon there? Can you see those kisses? I want you to think on the heart of God to you. I know that Christians routinely feel shame over sin. Shame that keeps them in the far country. They're paralyzed by it. They end up thinking, how in the world can God love me now? I, I believed in Him. I was baptized. I did well, for a while, I drew near to the Lord and then I got into sin. And then they, you know, they come back. People say to them, listen, the Lord loves you still and the Lord forgives. And the Lord, when you confess your sin, He is faithful and just to forgive you of all your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And so you go back to the Lord. You have your fellowship renewed with the Lord and you go strong with the Lord. And then you turn from the Lord. 
And you get lured away from the Lord by the promise of sin, the empty promises of sin and those temporary pleasures. And you think again, how can God take me back? Surely God has had it up to here with me. I've reached the limit and He's going to turn me out or put me on the shelf or I never, I don't actually belong to Him. And this is a great struggle for believers on a routine basis. And I, I said to you before, this can happen to immature and mature believers because we are all sinners. And Satan's accusations can be very true and very loud so that it becomes the only thing that we hear. Don't be shamed into staying where you are in the far country. Remember the Father's kindness. Realize it. Rise up and go back home. Go back home. Because there is a Father waiting there who will run to you. He is not looking for a speech said perfectly well. He is looking for His Son and He is looking for His daughter. Don't stay where you are. Go home. I want you to know something. You know, your heart and your life is like this son. You don't have to be... um, You don't have to stab your father in the back like this young man did in the metaphorical sense to be as bad as him. We know our hearts. We know our sin. You know, what we have done, we didn't want him. We wanted His gifts. When His gifts were in hand, we turned our back on Him and we wasted them all. That's what we have done. So you are like this son and I am like this son and perhaps we are worse than this son in our practice. But God is like this father and I want you to know He is better than Him. He is more than this father because like I was telling you last week, And this is just the plain truth. The the parables of the Bible and the symbols of the Bible are never as great as the reality of the truth. That's just the way it works with metaphors and symbols and allegories. They're never as great as the reality. So it's quite possible that your sin in practice is worse than this prodigal. But I'll tell you what, our Father in Heaven is greater than the Father of this story. Because the parable... And the symbolism cannot match His love. Our God's love is incomprehensible. You can't wrap your mind around His love for you. You will never in all of eternity wrap your mind around His love. So forget grasping it. You will never get to the bottom of it. You will spend eternity learning finding new depths, seeing it from new angles, and your heart will enlarge for eternity with the knowledge of His love. Your knowledge will just expand and expand and expand. And your worship will grow and grow right along with it. And that's why heaven will be so awesome. If you come home to Him, 
He will for ages without end show to you the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward you in Christ Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7. When the Son at last begins to speak, He doesn't get to finish what He had planned. Do you notice that? He doesn't get all the way through what He had thought. And that's not because, wait a second, my Father's being pretty kind here. I don't have to say that part about being an unworthy son and wanting to be a servant. That's not what he is thinking. Because if he was, I don't think he would have even said the first part about, about being uh, sinning against his father and against heaven. Actually, he, he does say that part about being the unworthy son, doesn't he? But he doesn't say the part about, you know, being hired as a servant. You know why that is? Because the father cuts him off. The father doesn't let him finish. Look at what it says. But the father said to his servant, I'm reading in verse 22 to 24, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate it. Think about this with me. Number one, truth be told, the father could have killed his son according to the law and all the Pharisees and scribes listening to this story would have nodded their approval. Number two, the father could have made the son his servant and he would have been far more kind to his son than what his son actually deserved. Or number three, the father could have put the son on some kind of probation, some kind of trial to see how he would do over the long haul, but that's not, he has, that doesn't enter into his heart either. Instead, he says to his servants, quickly, don't waste any time. Do this. Get it done. Get it done now. I want my, I want my son restored. I want him restored in full. And I want him restored in full right now. Quickly, go. Best robe. Ring on his hand. Shoes on his feet. And all of these things say that the son is being restored in full to sonship, to authority, to the place that he had before. Except now he knows how much the father actually loves him. So the fattened calf, that was what was reserved for, you know, they were fattening this thing up because there would come along either a feast or um, just a special celebration, and so they were saving it. And it only got used on the rarest of occasions, the, uh, the peaks of their life. And now is the time. This is a peak. This is a wonderful moment in the life of their family. So they kill the fattened calf, and soon the, the music and the dancing, the sound of it gets out to the ears of the elder son who is out in the field working. And his response is what we're going to look at next week. I, I don't think that you underestimate your sin. I don't, we take sin seriously at Alls Chapel. I don't think you underestimate its power to rupture your fellowship with the Lord. It may be that some overestimate the power of their sin. But that's only because of this. 
because we underestimate Christ's power to save. We underestimate the faithfulness of God and the depth of His love and that that deep love and affection is ours forever. So our sin, yes, is exceedingly sinful. But like we have said before, quoting a 19th century Scottish preacher, for every one look that you take at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. When you remember your own exceeding sinfulness, think on the kindness of the Lord. And do not stay where you are. In the far country. Or in shame. Go back home. Because there is a Father there who will run to you. One more thing I want to say as we close. This is such good news for sinners that we need to think on how can we keep this good news to ourselves? Our community is full of people who need to hear good news from Christians. So let's spread the word. Father, we thank You for this story. Lord, we have Luke 15, a whole chapter full of these stories telling us of Your obsessive and excessive love for Your people your faithful kindness and your grace toward us. Lord, we can't say enough. We can't say enough. So we give you our thanks and we praise you. And we ask that you would plant the truth of your love in our hearts. And I pray that your kindness would lead us to repentance and would bring us home. Lord, may we never say, well, the Lord is kind so I can go on in my sin. I pray that we would say in our hearts, the Lord is kind and I'm coming home. So help us put this mindset, this faith, this resolve in our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.